Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show. My name is Mallory Ortberg, also known as your host, Dear Prudence. With me in the studio this week is Mary Goss, a comedian based in the Bay Area who is generally trying her best. Her comedy show, My Greasy Sons, is held at the Woods Bar in Oakland the first Tuesday of every month. Mary, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for uh, like helping me say My Greasy Sons on the air. <laughs> it's uh, People seem to be generally pretty into that name for a comedy show. It feels so right And just given the week that we have had, the fact that just walking to the studio this morning felt like walking through a campfire. And all I want to do right now is sort of crawl inside of an old tree and fall asleep. Yes, that feels very, very appropriate. I'm taking my joy where I can find it. I'm really taking my joy where I can find it. Where are you taking your joy from this week? Um, This week I have been taking my joy from uh, watching uh, uh, American Vandal. I was... Literally about to say, if you do not know where your next bolt of joy is coming from, might I recommend the television program American Vandal? But you're already on it. Yeah, I just finished episode five. Oh, God. It's so good. They're so sweet. For listeners who may not yet be familiar uh, with the show that I have been yelling about nonstop on Twitter for at least the last two weeks, uh, it is a television program on Netflix that is in the vein of Serial or Making a Murderer or The Jinx, and it is all about answering the question of who spray-painted dicks on 27 cars in the faculty parking lot of a high school in Oceanside, California. Uh, It is pretend. It is is scripted. But it it is done in those styles. And it is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, it's so, so good and so well done and so accurate for high schoolers. Oh, God. I felt like, oh, I went to high school with you. I went to high school with you. I never see you on TV, but I know you. Yes. It was like if I were to come up with an alternate title for that, it would be My Gracie Sons. Oh, it's so pitch perfect. Yeah. I wish so much that we could just like throw out the Dear Prudence opening intro music and just do the American Vandal intro. It's Um, so, so good. They had me at we're going to need more than ball hairs to crack this case open. From that moment, they had me. It was so good. I think the opening, uh, just everything had me immediately. But my roommate and I refer to like a very particular subset as majestic teen boys. Mm -hmm. And that show was full of majestic teen boys. Such dirtbags. Yes. And such wonderful dirtbag girls, too. Yes. Like Gange. I love her. I love her, too. Uh, it's, It's just true True beauty. Yeah. And there's so few pure, unalloyed joys in my life right now. Yeah. I'm really grateful for this one. Yeah. No, that that is a wonderful show, and I've been yelling about it also just to everyone who listen. That makes me so happy. I've already ordered two T-shirts that appear Ooh. on the show, because all I care about now is buying T-shirts from television shows Which that I've already ones? watched. Uh, the Carrot one. Uh, uh, how did you find that? I kept Googling, like, <laughs> where to buy T-shirts from American Vandal, good, because good, good. I just, I really commit to things. Yeah, of course. Um, and then I think a different Carrot shirt that Dylan also wore. That's yeah, just the whole I, I wanted to know, like, okay, I haven't gotten to the end of the series, but... I've watched it all the way through three times now. I, I love spoilers, so is the carrot thing ever addressed? It is not. That, that's a that mild enough spoiler. Yeah, no, they never explain why he's wearing carrot-themed shirts. Yeah. All right. Well, now that I feel slightly centered, slightly mm-hmm. capable of being a human being in the world, I think we should jump right into our questions. Would you be so good as to read the first letter for yes, us? Yes, Absolutely. The subject line is co-opting tragedy. 
Dear Prudence, I live in Las Vegas, about half an hour from the Strip. Last Sunday night, my family and I were in the area where the shooting happened, but left to go home an hour before it began. I had some other family members at the music festival, but no one I know was injured or died. The first 24 hours after it happened, I didn't feel much of anything. Then I felt angry. Now I seem to be cycling between that emptiness, a bone-deep anger, and extreme anxiety about everything from being in public alone to going places where lots of people will be. I feel a bit out of control, and also like I don't have a right to be this upset, since no one I know suffered physical harm. How do I get myself back on track? I want to help people who need it instead of being so wrapped up in my fear, and more selfishly, I want to live my normal life. I can't hide at home for the rest of forever. So uh, I thought there were kind of two things that struck me about this letter, one of which was um, sort of what do I do with all of these feelings, right? Like I live in an overwhelming, upsetting time. I was, you know, narrowly avoided an act of terrorism that is not being called terrorism because it was committed by a white male. Yes. Um, And that is, you know, additionally alienating and and distressing and disorienting. And then also that kind of question of uh, do I have a right to feel the way that I feel? Am I taking something away from somebody else or am I you know, appropriating an experience that I didn't have in order to sort of center myself or make myself seem like a victim when I'm not. I'm sort of curious about your take on both of those. Yeah. So for the first part, I mean, there there's this way of uh, addressing tragedies like this in the media that make it just it's just so overwhelming. This is happening constantly. Gun violence is a huge, huge issue in this country. And it can often seem like commonplace given how often it happens. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is definitely something that leads to confusion or at least like difficulty processing these things. But the second point that you made was the one that I was thinking about more in that people have the tendency, some people do, um, to like police each other's reactions to things like this. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wanted to, you know, make it very clear to the letter writer that like their feelings are absolutely valid and that there's uh, there's nothing wrong about being understandably distressed of this about this huge tragedy that happened um and i mean especially given their proximity to it but it, it doesn't need to be a checklist of like how exactly affected were you this is how you are allowed to process or grieve right well especially too because this letter writer nothing they described sounded inappropriate or self-obsessed or right. like they were doing or saying anything that was you know taking up the space that should rightly be held by someone who is more directly affected like the yeah. things you're describing letter writer um anxiety about being in public anger that somebody killed that many people um who were just trying to go to a concert. Of, that's a that's a sane response. Yeah. That's a normal response. Of course you feel that way. Um, wh- part of what you are reacting to is this insanity that um, there is – you want to be able to feel safe in public spaces. And right now, uh, that's not a given. Yeah. So that's a completely normal response. It's not you trying to make this about you. You're not, like, running out here trying to, uh, you know – grab the microphone from somebody who was injured and say, this is about me. Part of what you are responding to is, I want to feel safe in public spaces, and I don't, and we don't always feel that way. So that's really normal. Um, So I would say, if nothing else, give yourself a lot of freedom to say, this has me shaken up. Like, this, you know, realizing I came very close to being hurt or injured for just trying to go to a concert in Las Vegas. That's awful. Um, And so I think if you are wondering both, what do I do with these feelings? Like one is you got to let yourself feel them. And then another one is 
figure out things that uh, really motivate you and that 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 you care about and whether that's um you know working towards more strict gun control or uh helping to raise money for people who were victimized like this there's so many different things yeah. right like the broken health insurance in healthcare uh, systems in our country like so many people are financially ruined by something like going to the hospital yeah. so if it feels helpful to you to help raise money for those people if it helps you to try to get involved in activism if it if it feels helpful to you to try to do something with these feelings so that you feel like okay at the very least i am contributing to a meaningful response to acts of violence and terrorism um then you should do that yeah one of the other things i was thinking about uh with regards to this letter is like the letter writer you know understandably has a lot of anxiety around this and when that happens you can often feel paralyzed and like how to help just because the tragedy is like at such a large level that it's hard to figure out where exactly you want to focus your energy. But there are ways to address that or ways to try to feel like you're putting some good out into the world in response to this that, you know, could be conducive to someone who's understandably having a hard time leaving the house. Uh, fundraising is a really good idea. Um, uh, the letter writer, I mean, if it's within their means, uh, they may want to either donate to things or just make other people aware of how they can help. Um, that research doesn't require going out into the world into large groups of people. Um, they also may want to look into, you know, counseling for themselves, support groups. Just uh, there's, especially in their area, there's bound to be a fair amount of resources yeah. they can be able to access to try to help process these feelings in conjunction with other people who are probably feeling the same way and maybe connected to it. Uh, at different levels. Right. And and to, to bear in mind, yeah, I would especially suggest if you are having a lot of difficulty leaving the house, some short-term counseling, especially that focuses on anxiety and, yeah. you know, uh, proximity to trauma that may prove helpful to you. And to just bear in mind, um, you have a right to that. Part of acts of terrorism like this, um, what they are designed to do is to engender fear in the general public. And you are the general public. Yeah. So the fact that you are having this response, if nothing else, just give yourself the freedom to say, this is this is an understandable response. I'm not taking away resources from other people. I'm not running into somebody else's appointment with a grief counselor and saying, right. it's my turn now. Yeah. Um, you have a right to that. Uh, and I'm so sorry. And I'm really glad that you're well. I'm really glad that you're safe and that the people you care about are safe. Yeah. If nothing else, it can be good uh, as a reminder to kind of uh, when when you're feeling uh, overcome by feelings of anger, anxiety, you know, what have you, uh, completely understandable emotional responses. It could be good to remind yourself that you are incredibly lucky that given how close you were to that, that nobody you uh, care about was you know, injured or uh, worse. Right. And you shouldn't feel guilty about that. Right. You should feel glad. Yes. Um, and I know that it's hard. There's the whole like survivor's remorse or just mm -hmm. being proximate to the injury and death of others. There's yeah. that sense of it ought to have been me. Why wasn't it me? And to just, if nothing else, to know it's good. It's, it's good that you're okay. It's not, that's not something that you should feel wrong about. Like the wrong came from the man who shot people. Right. Not from you. Absolutely. Um, you did not do anything wrong by, by being okay. Right. Um, and good luck. All right, this next one, the subject line is just don't know what to say. Dear Prudence, I've been friends with another couple for many years. Sadly, about five years ago, Peter developed early-onset Parkinson's disease, for which he has since had surgery and takes powerful drugs. These have kept him alive, but the quality of his life and his behavior have seriously deteriorated. His spouse, John, has chosen to tough it out and continues to live with Peter at home and refuses to hire help. 
Most of their former friends have parted ways with them as Peter's condition continues to deteriorate and he becomes more of a burden on those around him. It's now come down to Peter and John alone in their home with the both of them enduring a four-hour drive to our home to visit me and my wife for extended weekends. Now my wife has had enough of our caring for Peter after he had a particularly serious accident in our bathroom along with misusing and breaking our household appliances to poor John's intense embarrassment. We told John not to worry about it, that such things do happen, but at this point, it's more than clear that Peter needs constant supervision, and he does not appear to be willing or perhaps able to help himself. He relies exclusively on John to be his 24-7 caretaker, and John is showing signs of intense burnout. I don't want to join those other friends who have left them, but I recognize and understand my friend's fatigue with their increasingly frequent visits and constant demands brought on by Peter's condition. I should add that from time to time I've visited them to help out, but John uses his hosting of my visits as justification for inviting themselves back to our place whenever he needs a respite. So now I'm fine that I'm increasingly reluctant to visit them. How can we help the both of them without burning ourselves out too? This was a letter that at first struck me as really challenging, and then I reread it and saw a little bit more of a way through than I had at first. Okay, I'm interested to see what that would be. Because at no point does the letter writer mention that anyone has talked to John and Peter about this. Oh, yes. Yeah. That also struck me as uh, something that could absolutely help. Which is not to say that this is not complicated or that John's immediate response is going to be receptive and open. But you say their other friends have kind of left. Not that we've tried saying this to John and his response has been no. Like, the answer clearly is a very serious talk with John. Yes. Um because I I one thing that leapt out to me was that I noticed the letter writer said that John refuses to get full-time help for Peter. And I was wondering what the I I guess what the context for that was because if they it, it seems like a lot of assumptions are being made. Um that, you know, John is using their visits to justify um to come back. Like if you come yes. visit me, That means that, you know, you should return the favor when in reality it's not about you hosted me, now I host you. It's I really need help and this is the sort of pretext that I can uh, jump onto so that I can say, now it's my turn to come visit, knowing full well that when he comes to visit, you and your wife are both put in the position of being full-time nurses. Right, right, absolutely. Um, And one of the the other things I had thought about uh, in relation to that letter was – I I want more context of how and when and to what extent these friends abandon them fully. Because if they're truly not in their lives anymore, that's heartbreaking. Right. Um, but if there if there's any sort of contact, if there's any sort of way that this could be more of a collective help effort than just being placed on the letter writer and their wife, that could be... Uh, another thing to consider. But yeah, first and foremost, there should be a, a long, hard conversation with John. Well, and it, I, I think, you know, whether or not any of this person's, any of John and Peter's other friends come back into their life, I, right. I, I don't think that's the answer. I mean, obviously, yeah. it's very sad that that's been their response. But letter writer, I think there's a really clear action that you can take. Like, for example, um, last time they visited, Peter very nearly like, injured himself in your bathroom and broke a lot of things. And your response was, your wife said, I don't want to have him visit anymore. But you said to John, it's okay these things happen. Yeah. Which is not true. 
Yeah. Right? Like, your response to him was to say, this is not a problem. And it is. Right. And that doesn't mean, you know, that's not that you should go say very, like, unkind or insensitive things. Like, you yeah. are a burden on us. That's not what I'm suggesting that you do. But um, you have a very clear incident that you can point to and say, this is becoming unsafe. Yeah. You are unsafe and Peter is unsafe. If he hurts himself, if he falls, if he breaks something and, like, injures himself further with what that is, like... That that would be the worst possible outcome. Right. Like we are at a point where you can no longer pretend that things are working out because you are not a full time nursing team. Yeah, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. You shouldn't resent yourself for that. Um, you are not capable of doing that any more than you are capable of like being a team of anything. Yeah, and so to say I can't have you guys over in the house without. Like a, a care professional. Yeah. Um, and that that is because I don't want to feel responsible for Peter falling and dying in my home. And that's yeah. a really okay boundary to draw. Um, and again, I'm, I'm aware this is really intensely emotional. I am sure that John's reasons for not wanting to hire help are probably a combination of mm-hmm. financial insecurity, uncertainty about the future, not wanting to feel like he's abandoning his partner, fear that yeah. other people won't care for him or love him the same way that he does. And I really get that. But you cannot let that prevent you from having this conversation. And you need to have it now. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. And there is a, definitely a middle ground between, you know, performing as full-time caretaker, well, not full-time caretakers, but during the duration of the visits, performing as uh, Peter's de facto caretakers in addition versus, you know, a complete fade-out or what the letter writer had uh, characterized as, you know, abandoning them. Right. The setting a boundary is not an act of abandonment. It's an act of, like, love and care and compassion. Right. And and you're just acknowledging reality. Like, you you know, you say, my wife can't do this anymore. I'm scared for Peter's well-being John seems totally burned out, and you need to say all of those things to him. Um, and you you can and should say them lovingly and and with you know discernment, so that you're not just piling on him, but just to say you're not well, Peter's not well, my wife and I are not able to help any more than we already have. Something needs to change, right? And I can't promise you that that conversation is going to go beautifully. Of course, this is incredibly painful and scary, um, but you do have to have it. Um, and you need to figure out with your wife beforehand, what are our absolute hard limits? And if right. one of them is, we cannot host you guys in our home anymore, we cannot take on the liability, yeah. um, then that needs to be something that you clearly communicate. And um, if you if you want to, if, if you do feel able to say, like, I will help you make phone calls, I will help you talk to your own insurance company and figure out um, what's available to you. I will I will help you screen people who could come and, and, and look in after Peter in your home. Like, those may be things you are willing and able to do, um, but you need to make it really clear and and, and do for John what you wish the other friends had done, which is be honest. Yeah. Because otherwise you will. Otherwise, either, you know, Peter will have an accident in your home and something terrible will happen, and, and that would be an awful outcome, or you and your wife will be pushed to such a limit that you will stop taking John's calls and you will feel guilty and ashamed and sad every time you see his name pop up on your phone and I don't want that for you, and I don't want that for John or Peter. Um, yeah, this is this is loving. This is caring. You are not doing this because you're saying, John, you're a bad caretaker, or you should just abandon Peter and put him somewhere away and, and forget about him. That's not what you're saying. What you're saying is just very 
clearly, like, you are not a medical professional. You can't do this. Yeah, the current situation isn't sustainable at all. Yeah. And I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry for, for everyone involved. And I think as painful as this conversation will be, it is so necessary and it is the only way to move in a better direction. Yeah. All right. So continuing with just real heavy hitters, would you uh, – by the way, actually, before we jump into this one, um, this this reminds me, uh, there is now uh, transcripts of the oh. podcast available on Slate Plus, which is something that some listeners and readers have been asking me about for a while, to have transcripts of the podcast for uh, folks who are deaf or hard of hearing, um, and, and those are now available on Slate Plus. So uh, that's part of why it's so great to Good be able to, to take this uh, letter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, subject. How can I get my hearing family to accept me? Dear Prudence, I was born without an auditory nerve in my left ear and an underdeveloped one in the other. Despite this, I was taught to speak and do so regularly. I also know ASL. Well, my right ear has gotten worse, and I cannot hear anything anymore. I shout when I speak now, and I struggle to keep up in conversations. I lip-read, but it's not very helpful. People tell me I should look into cochlear implants, corrective surgery, etc. However, after giving it some thought, I am okay with being completely deaf. I've lived most of my life as a broken hearing person, quotes, and now I'm uh, ready to embrace my deaf identity. This has split my family, as most of them do not sign and don't like the idea of having to text or email me all the time. My mom even thinks I'm selfish for choosing this lifestyle. So how can I get my family to accept my deaf identity? So I think one thing that might be helpful to just mention at the top of this before we sort of dive into what we think is um, for people who may not be aware, um, there there is, you know, uh, within the deaf community, there's this this concept of the capital D deaf community, which is to say um, like a really meaningful uh, group of people who uh, in, in many ways like um, form a group identity um, and have like really positive, robust ties to like their own sense of language, ways of communicating. Um, and it's really positive. So uh, but just just kind of a helpful context of what this person is con- contemplating doing. There's a lot of precedent for it. Right. Um, there's a lot of support and community there. Um, there are many, many reasons why a person might not want to undergo cochlear implants. In many ways, they're not... Um, completely helpful. They still result in needing to find other ways to communicate. So, um, you know, I'm also just aware, like, I I am not hard of hearing. So I'm I'm trying to think through, like, what's a useful way to talk about this? But um, yeah, what this person is describing um, is likely something that they've given a lot of thought to, um, takes into account their own, um, like, body, their own auditory processing, their own abilities, um, their own strengths. And so it's not as if they are just saying, I don't want to try anything. Um, I don't I don't care. Like this is a a, a real and a valid and a useful choice. And many, many people do it. Yeah. Um, And I'm also just so sorry that uh, the letter writer's family hasn't been as sympathetic as one would hope in a situation like this or one would expect from family members. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because the letter writer mentions that they have... um, uh, been and gosh, I, I I apologize too. I'm not sure if hard of hearing is like the best term right now. So just um just but just that they have been living uh, with at least like a, a deaf identity yes. for since they were born. Um, that their family members, including their parents, have never learned to sign uh, yeah. or tried to uh, you know communicate more via text or email in a way that is easier for the letter writer. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. 
Yeah, they had like a lot of time yeah, to try have. a little. And it seems that there are a lot of resources that they've been unwilling to, uh, that their family's been unwilling to really try out. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I was surprised to hear that most of the family can't sign when this has been a part of the letter writer's identity for their entire life. And to react and say that, you know, electing not to get a cochlear implant uh, is selfish. That that really rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, not that this is your question, letter writer, because you sound right. already quite certain and secure that you're making a choice that is best for you. Um, and that's that's great. Like, I'm glad you have that clarity. Yeah. So then your question is, how do I get them to accept my deaf identity? And that that's challenging, right? Because mm-hmm. in some ways, they have known about your deaf identity since birth, and their response has sort of been, well, you need to meet us on our level, right. and we don't need to come meet you where you are. Yeah. And so I think it will help to start at least with a sense of, I can't control this outcome, and I want to accept the possibility that I will ask for what I want. I will make a reasonable, um, convincing case that what I'm asking for is not outrageous or or unduly difficult, and they might still say no. Yeah, and that that would definitely be hurtful. But one way to mitigate that, if it's within the options available to the letter writer, is look into counseling, look into resources. Um, the National Association for the Deaf, uh, local chapters there, see what resources they have available. Right, because right. I'm sure other people who come from, like, families with people uh, who do hear. Mm-hmm. Um, they may also have some experience. So I would say reach out to other friends of yours in the deaf community and sort yeah. of ask, what was this like for you if you come from a family with hearing members? Um, yeah. What's worked? What didn't? What were appropriate boundaries for you to set? Kind of ask those questions because I think they will be even more helpful than than either of us can be yeah. uh, who are you know well-meaning but with no experience in that area. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would recommend, uh, if at all possible, to uh, – look into uh, therapist, counselors, something like that. You know, if your family will go with you, that would be great. If mm-hmm. not, a counselor or someone with resources. Uh, and particularly, I think, a counselor who has experience yes. with the deaf community. Yeah. Um, possibly even a deaf counselor, mm-hmm. um, uh, if that's something that you can um, uh, find in, in wherever that you, that you live. But um, I, I think your larger question is, how do I communicate where I'm coming from to my family? So I think to make it clear... I'm really comfortable being deaf. Yeah. Um, you don't have to, like, go into a laundry list of justifications to your family about why you have decided against, you know, quote-unquote corrective surgery. But if you feel comfortable saying, like, for X and Y reason, you know, I don't want to do that, um, you don't have to like that. But it is my choice. It is my body. It is the yeah. way that I process. There are... You know, you know, knowing ASL, finding resources in the deaf community, those are all really reasonable responses to being deaf. Yeah. So it is not. Um, so to just say, yeah, you don't have to love my choice, um, but it is my choice. It makes me really happy. It would be very meaningful to me if yeah. you would try to learn ASL um, or at the very least, if you would bear like my deafness in mind and text and email me mm-hmm. more than call um, and, and to accept this about me, even if you don't like it. Um, and if they don't and they can't, you know, you'll have to decide, do I want to have this conversation repeatedly? Do I want to get into a debate about it? Would I rather say, let me know when you have been able to wrap your head around this yeah. um, and you are willing to text me? Because you're not asking anything, you know, unduly 
taxing of them. Yeah, not uh, not at all. It's, I it's love things, texting. Yeah, texting's, texting's so great. Good. I wish I could text everybody exclusively. I, I do that most times when I'm home and my roommate's also home. Texting's great. Um, but it's yeah. I mean, uh, one one bit of context that I think would be helpful f- would be the time between when the letter writer came to this decision, communicated it with their family, and how long it's been since they've gotten that response. Because it it reads to me like this is something fairly new, and there are bound to be a lot of emotional responses at the outset of something. But I would hope that you know, with time and with the understanding that this is their own personal choice and they have their own reasons for it and they don't need to justify that to their family. Um, hopefully with time, their family would become more accepting. Right. Yeah. And uh, this feels like a good time to plug if there are any um, readers or listeners of the show who know of any useful resources for yeah. like hearing members of deaf people um, that would be sort of like a helpful sort of like intro um, or ways to understand, like even something as simple as like, you know, you mentioned that you lip read, but it's not very helpful. I think sometimes people mm-hmm. who have always had, uh, who have always been hearing think, oh, lip reading, it's that thing you do when you are yeah. deaf and then you just can read what everyone's saying and it's not perfect. And yeah. if someone's far away or, you know, um, if they are not facing you or mm-hmm. or if they are mumbling, like... It's not just like this perfect bulletproof, like, ah, now I can just see what everyone's saying on their lips. Like, so just ways in which your family might not understand or sort of have the tools to figure out why it is you're making the choices that you are. Um, That might be helpful. So if anybody has any recommendations, uh, let us know, write, call, whatever, um, and I will uh, plug them in the next uh, episode. Uh, But yeah, good luck. I think for you, the most important thing is going to be deciding... At what point am I willing to say I will answer good faith questions where Mm -hmm. I think you are actually trying to learn more, um, but I am not going to get drawn into an argument about what surgeries I do and do not get and the ways in which I decide it is best for me to communicate. Right, because it's clear that the the letter writer came at this from like a very thoughtful, very well thought out position. It's it's their own personal choice again but it's also something that it's not like they're just oh i I can't get the cochlear implant so whatever this is me now it it seems like a a far more thoughtful part of their identity right well and that's you know that's part of like what what people mean when they talk about ableism is this idea of you know i a hearing person am normal default everything i do is normal default you need to do a lot to meet me where I am right. and, and and to be quote unquote fixed. And I don't yes. need to do anything in the other direction. I don't need to like think about reasonable accommodation. I don't need to think of you as like a viable alternative to my identity. Um, I don't need to go out of my way to learn anything about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is part of why, you know, ableism is really damaging and, and, and not good. Yeah. So good luck. Please write back. Let us know how you're doing. I hope that this yes. choice is one that's really like good and helpful for you um, and that you're able to find a lot of other people who support you um, and are willing to sign and text and email. Um, I hope that you get that. All right. Another family. This is a, a family heavy week. Yeah. Families. My advice to everyone is don't have a family. Um, <laughs> spring forth from the head of Zeus fully formed. That sounds great. If you can. Yeah. Bearing a shield and a sword. Definitely a shield and a sword. Definitely. Okay. So this the subject line of this one is just negotiating adopted and biological relationships. Dear Prudence, I am adopted from a foreign country, and I'm very much bonded with my adopted American family. 
I consider them my family, and I'm devoted to them. With their support and encouragement, I began searching for my biological relatives once I was legally able to, looking for medical background, etc. After years of searching, I successfully connected with my biological family. That whole side of the family is still together. It's been an emotional and fascinating experience that does also not negate in any way my deep love of my family here. My parents here are very happy and have even met my biological parents. Everyone is overjoyed, almost. My adopted sibling, however, does not want to have anything to do with this. They don't want to meet these people, they don't want to hear about them, and the only time they have a response is to berate them. We suspect that my sibling might feel threatened, and I try to avoid talking about these things with them. But the biological family sometimes sends them gifts in an effort to make them feel included, and they mostly toss the gifts aside. I'm not sure the best way to address this with either side. I'm not much good at lying, I'm neuroatypical, and I struggle with social cues and knowing appropriate reactions to social situations. I don't want my biological family to feel bad, as they often ask if my sibling liked their gifts. I also don't want my sibling to feel bad. Should I just stop giving them the things that have been sent for them? Should I ask my biological family to stop sending things? It's a bit of a confusing situation, and it's hard to find people with the same frame of reference to ask for advice. Talk to your sibling. Oh, man. How, how, how would you recommend, like, do you think this is a conversation to be had where it's sort of like, I want to tell you what I need from you and I want you to do it? Or do you think it should be a sort of asking questions of the sibling, like, how are you feeling? Why are you responding the way that you're responding? I, I based on based on what the letter writer said, I would say start with asking questions because it, it seems to be conjecture at this point. I'm not sure how many conversations there have been around this with the sibling directly, mm-hmm. because uh, what the letter writer said is that they suspect that uh, their sibling might be might feel threatened, but it doesn't seem like there's any direct input here from the sibling. I mean, there. If you want to approach it from more of a pragmatic standpoint, um, I, I feel like one of the main issues has been around gifts. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it's not written anywhere whether or not they've asked the sibling if they want these gifts, other than the sibling's kind of tepid response. Right. That is tricky. I feel like um, it, obviously there are a lot of layers here. And one of the things that's tricky is, you know, um, the, the 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 sibling in question is not there's no connection to yeah. the letter writer's biological family. Um, so I can certainly understand your sibling maybe having complicated feelings, especially if they're younger. You said you found your family yeah. after a couple years after being legally able. I don't know if your sibling is a lot younger than you. Mm-hmm. Um, this response would maybe make sense in a 15-year-old, and it would be a little harder to understand in a 30-year-old. But, uh, yeah, I, I do think it can be good to ask questions. I also think it's really fair, um, letter writer, for you to say, I do want to know more about what feelings this has brought up for you. Um, I also want to ask that if you cannot say anything kind about my biological family, stick with the golden rule of don't say anything at all. Yeah. That's... Like you say that the only time they talk about your biological family is to berate them. And I think it is absolutely fair for you to say, I need you not to do that with me. Yeah. Um, that is an ask. I am asking this of you. Please do not do this. Yeah. If the most you can do is forced neutrality, give me forced neutrality. Yeah, that's that's a perfectly valid uh, thing to request of your sibling because it it, it is a very uh, it, it seems to be a very fraught situation for them, and that doesn't mean that anyone's feelings are invalid, but their uh, the siblings' responses have not been that of you know a kind uh, uh, just a, a kind and hopeful 
response so far. Right. Yeah. And letter writer, I know that you mentioned that due to being neuroatypical, you sometimes feel like you struggle with social cues or knowing the right response to a social situation. So I don't want to just say, like, just go talk to your sibling. Um, uh, You know, I don't know what that normally looks like for you. And if that's fraught, I I think it sounds like your your parents um, are, are, are you have a fairly close relationship. If you think it would be helpful, um, you could certainly like try to get a little feedback from them first, like say, I want to talk to my sibling about this. I'm not quite sure how to approach it. Um, do you have any recommendations? Yeah, would, it would it be, be helpful for idea. them to be present? I don't know. Um, but I, I don't think you have to avoid talking about these things with your sibling just because your sibling has been behaving, frankly, I think, badly. Yeah. Um, but again, I, I, I want to bear in mind that I don't know what conversations about serious topics between the two of you often look like. So um, depending on what uh, other sort of like legwork you want to do beforehand, I think it might be helpful. Yeah, I didn't mean to sound uh, a little overly frank at the outset. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that ideally in a situation, if you if you feel comfortable enough to have that conversation, it seems that that is one of the avenues you haven't gone down yet since um, since you suspect that your sibling might feel threatened or or things like that. It seems like there's not there hasn't been a lot of direct input. Right. And then I would say the other side of your problem, right, is I'm not good at lying. Um, I don't know what to say to my biological family when they ask how my sibling responded to the gifts. And I think depending on how that conversation with your sibling goes, you could say to your biological family, and you don't have to go into the details of it all, um, but you could say something like, this is more challenging for them than they expected. Um, And while I hope that someday things are different, I think it would probably be better for right now um, to not send them anything. Yeah, and it sounds like you've already, you know, developed a very, you know, a close and uh, good relationship with your biological family. So they would, uh, I, w- I would hope, be very understanding about that request. Right. And, they, you know, it might feel a little painful for them because, of mm-hmm. course, they just want to get to know them. They're clearly just excited to have you as a part of their life um, and they want to be friendly. It doesn't sound like they're trying to, like, call your sibling and become best friends yeah. and all move in together. But it would be OK, I think, for you to say, um, you know, it's it's this is tricky for my sibling. I think it would be better not to send them anything right now. I really appreciate the kindness and support that you've demonstrated by sending them gifts. Like, I understand the spirit in which it was intended. But I think for right now, what they need is space. Right. Um, And and because, uh, yeah, uh, mentioning being neuroatypical and having difficulty with social cues, difficult conversations, things like that. Another plug for counseling, if that's uh, within your uh, what's available to you currently, um, if there's been difficulty communicating, um, perhaps someone uh, who you know specializes in or has had experience with uh, negotiating relationships between adoptive and biological families, that could be that could be useful to you. Right. Yeah. And 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 to be clear, not in the sense of you would need this because you're a neuroatypical. Oh, yeah. Um, which is not what you were saying, I understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just because there are so many different levels and layers here, um, uh, that if you feel like it would benefit you to have another person to bounce ideas off of, mm-hmm. um, to sort of get clarity from, then that might be helpful to you, particularly if it was a therapist who was experienced working with neuroatypical clients yeah. and was not all about everybody has to respond to things in this, like, really socially normative way and you mm-hmm. need to get on board. Right. Um, yeah. Always always a plug for, like, 
therapists who aren't just trying to make everybody like behave in like one single way mm-hmm. um, I think is useful. But yeah, absolutely. I think you can have that conversation with your sibling. You can certainly tell your family, your biological family, I think for right now, um, we should we should lay off of the gifts. Yeah. And I think you could say that in a way that didn't feel like, stop it, you're jerks. Right. Because um, that's clearly not what you feel. Um, and, you know, everything else aside, congratulations on finding your biological family and by and large being able to incorporate both of your families into your life in a way that sounds really lovely and loving. I'm, I'm really excited for you. That's really cool. Yeah. All right. Now we're getting into some more. Um, this is just, I don't want to say fun, but yeah. I think after the heaviness of the last few, it's a little more like. Yeah, reading this one was a bit of a relief. It was, yeah. Would you read it again, please? Yeah, absolutely. The subject is stolen. Dear Prudence, Jenny and I have been friends for several years and roommates for three. When we got introduced to John, I fell pretty fast, but Jenny beat me to the punch and asked John out first. She knew I liked him, but I downplayed how much so not to make it weird. Jenny and John dated semi-casually and he was over a lot. We hung out and it was great. Then Jenny's ex turned up and Jenny started seeing him instead. She insisted we all be friends, but John started hanging out with me instead. I asked for Jenny's blessings, and she told me she wanted me to be happy, and John was great. Jenny followed her ex when he moved, and John moved in with me, and we started dating. Two months in, Jenny's relationship imploded, and she moved back. Only now she's bad-mouthing me to anyone with ears. She says I stole John, sabotaged her relationship to get him, and friends don't date friends' exes. I feel like I have been punched in the gut. I don't know what or if I should talk to Jenny. This is so incredibly unlike her, I thought her Facebook got hacked until mutual friends told me. To make it more awkward, we both work in the same small industry and will run into each other professionally. So this is straight up a Paramore song? Yes. This was like a very popular Paramore song like eight years ago, Mm -hmm. and that's just really wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's not wonderful. It sounds unpleasant for you, but... Yeah, it doesn't sound great. It's adorable. Yeah. Uh, Jenny's an asshole. Jenny's an asshole who is making up nonsense rules. Yes, that is perfectly valid. Uh, You asked her for her blessings. She gave them. You can't take backsies on blessings. You also, if you dated somebody for two months and then you got together with your ex, you don't. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I in general, uh, I think it's it's weird to have rules about who your friends can and can't date yeah. based on either crushes or very brief relationships. I could certainly understand why someone would feel like this person I dated for three years and felt really strongly about if you guys started dating would be really difficult for me. That is not this situation. Yeah, but in that vein, the letter writer can't have it both ways because they made sure to mention that they had a crush on John first. Yeah, that's the other thing too, right? Like, I think obviously, like, you obviously handled that a lot better than she did. You just kind of felt sad. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, if you have a crush on someone and you don't ask them out and somebody else asks them out, that's okay. Yeah, and it didn't seem that they were going back on that or was trying to use that as an excuse. It was just a, a funny thing to mention when the moral of this should be stop, uh, you know, trying to uh, just control all of your friends' relationships and whether or not they have them. Yeah. Um, you and John are dating. He sounds, frankly, like a little ping pong ball who gets, yeah. like, passed around yeah, between also- the two of you. No, I'm sorry. I don't mean to say passed around in a way that's, like, demeaning. I just mean, yeah. like, the two of you seem to be sort of working out some sort of, like, psychosexual rivalry yes. through John, and that's funny. Try a thruple. Oh, boy. Can you imagine how bad that threesome would be? That would be so bad. It would, be a, it would, it would either be a nightmare or incredible. And yeah. then a nightmare, obviously. I, I think some combination of both uh, probably, oh, gosh. Don't, don't have know. a threesome, but if you do, please write back yeah, and let us know how you it must. I'm, I'm also just curious about several things in this letter. 
when I started reading it, I had assumed that they were all in undergrad. Uh, and then now they're talking about working in the same small industry. So I'm just like, how old are these people? What are you up to? Oh, my guess is like early mid-20s. Yeah, that, I mean, it's it, it feels like that to me, too. Um, and also, so John moved in and then you started dating. Uh, there's just so much I want to know about Yeah, that's this. total early 20s. Like, yeah. This is... Uh, Oh, I want to date like, all my roommates and their exes, you know. Oh, man. Every time 20s. I've ever known someone who started dating one of their roommates. It's always a, it's, it's amazing. <sighs> it's always been. It's always so dramatic and so wonderful. Much. Yeah. So, but uh, the good news is here, sometimes when somebody acts really outrageously, our response will be, I must have done something wrong. Otherwise, this person would not be going off like this. And yeah. actually... Uh, Jenny is just being awful. And you don't have to do a thing about it. Like, if she wants to run around yelling Mm -hmm. to anyone who will listen that you stole her boyfriend, um, it is not—that's not worth addressing or engaging in. It's not. It's just so not reality. John's John's a person who made his own choices, too. Nobody stole anyone. And also, one of the things that I found— I don't even know if it would be helpful in this situation, but one of my secret power moves is just to— Speak about bad behavior while it's happening. Yeah. If if Jenny's saying some BS to you, to your face, which I, doesn't sound to be the case, but just in case she or starts. On Facebook. Oh, boy. That's what yeah. made me think, like, wait, are they 16? Like, yeah. But no, 16-year-olds don't use Facebook anymore. Oh, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. No, fair. You're right. Mm-hmm. Time time marches on. Yeah, yeah. No, maybe something in a Snapchat story. But. Maybe. Um, yeah, no, Jenny is being very—and that's the thing, too, like— it, Anybody who is listening to her is kind of aware that she is being wildly unreasonable. Yeah. There's just, Jenny's not a good friend. Yeah, just try to keep it civil and maybe don't uh, try to talk to Jenny about your relationship in case you thought that that was a good idea. Yeah, I I don't know how worth it would be trying to have a conversation with Jenny. If she does or something really outrageous and you want to say, hey— you should knock this off. You mm-hmm. should find a better outlet for your aggression. This is ridiculous. You can do that. Yeah. Um, the friendship is not salvageable. Mm-mm. The things that she has done and said uh, from going from, it's great that you guys are dating, to, oh, no, my boyfriend and I broke up. You're a monster. I'm going to yeah. yell at you on the Internet. That's not the act of a good friend who made a mistake or an error in judgment. That's the act of a bad friend who considers you uh, totally disposable based on how she feels about herself and her own relationship on any given moment. Yep. She's a bad dude. I'm sorry that you found out this way. I hope John is really fun to date. And you should just feel really free to... I mean, you know, you get to mourn the friendship. Yeah. Obviously, it's sad when someone you thought you cared about turns out to be a lousy person who's a jerk. Mm-hmm. But um, there's nothing for you to, like, look back on and say, should I have done this differently? Um, there's yeah, nothing yeah. for you to say, how could I have brought this upon myself? Is there a good person somewhere hiding inside of Jenny that I can reach through the power of, like, reasonable conversation? Um, yeah, it could just take time uh, for her to stop bad-mouthing. You know, I'm not saying she's going right. to radically change her entire personality right now. Yeah, you didn't—you you can't steal people. Nope. You didn't steal John. Uh, I don't know how she thinks you could have sabotaged her relationship to get him, but just, you know, send her the Paramore song. Yeah. Don't send her the Paramore song. She will, like, slash your tires if you do that. But Yeah, but you could play it really, really loudly. Oh, my goodness. It's such a great song for just feeling really like, oh. Yeah. I got mine. Yeah. And you're the worst. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, you're fine. You're doing great. Your friend is bad. Yeah. All right. This next one, this last one, married mm-hmm. into money. Dear Prudence, I work at a nonprofit for those suffering from food instability, and my family and I have a simple but comfortable lifestyle. 
My brother-in-law and I have been good friends since my husband and I started dating. My brother-in-law recently got married, and we were so excited for him. But his new wife comes from an extremely wealthy family. Now he and his wife have not been working, and they've been taking a year of vacationing at the top resorts throughout the world. Every time I talk to them, they talk about their new things, their growing inheritance, their philanthropy seminars, and their vacations. They also love sending video messages from exotic places. I'm not sure if it is jealousy from our modest lifestyle or the nature of my work, but hearing from them makes me sick and angry. How can they brag about philanthropy and live like the 1%? My brother-in-law wants to know what happened and why I don't like his new wife. Is there a kind way to explain the situation, or is this something better left unsaid? My take is that this is something better left unsaid and something the letter writer probably needs to work out for themselves. Uh, Alternately, they should think about if it were not something they wanted to leave unsaid, what is the result they would want from a conversation about that? Right. How would that conversation go? Yeah. What would be a good outcome? Uh, Yeah. I sure can't think of anything. Yeah, I can't think of anything I I really... I think, yeah, letter writer, I'm not totally unsympathetic to where you're coming from. I think the idea of, like, attending philanthropy seminars at, like, top-notch resorts is kind of a bullshit way to convince yourself that spending a lot of money is giving back, sort of like in the way that sometimes people who run companies are like, I make jobs, as if that weren't the point of your company, as if it were like an act of kindness. Yeah. Um, I employ people. All right. right. Congrats. Yeah, that's not not an act of goodwill, Scrooge McDuck. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I I would say my best advice for you is uh, keep your eye on your own page. Yeah, that's a good point. And uh, because of your experience working in nonprofits with, you know, philanthropic efforts, if if you feel that they're not directing their philanthropic efforts in the right way, you could at least, you know, talk to your brother-in-law about uh, where you in your personal experience have seen need and things that they might find helpful. Absolutely. Like, I, I think the best way, because, you know, your two options are not either say, brother-in-law, I used to like you, but I think your wife is shallow and making you shallow and now you're bad people. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's going to be a good conversation. Mm-hmm. But neither do I think that you should only say, this is pure jealousy and pettiness on my part, and I need to just forget about it and pretend those feelings don't exist. Because obviously that's not working, right? Your brother-in-law's already noticed. Yeah. You have been unable to mask your dislike. Um, And so I think for you to, like, if if you want to talk about the work that you find meaningful, like, meet them where they're at. You're like, I know you guys are really interested in philanthropy. Here's a program that I'm working on right now that I think is really wonderful. I'd love to tell you more about it. Like, if nothing else, just share yeah. more stuff about your own life. Um, yeah, instead of trying to make them not share theirs. Yeah, and I get it. Some of that does sound frustrating. I, I, certainly, if I had a relative who went from being, like, uh, in in one sort of, like, social economic background and all of a sudden shot up to I don't work anymore and I'm taking a year off to travel, um, I'm sure I would feel feelings about that. And some yeah. of those feelings would rhyme with schmelacy <laughs> and schmustration. Yeah. Um, so I get it. And and it doesn't it's not just pettiness that you're feeling this way. But I also think there there's just no way I can see a productive, helpful conversation coming out of I don't like the way you and your wife spend your money. Yeah. Um, like that's that's kind of what struck me the most is that they're Especially because he's your brother in law. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like he's your husband's relative. He's yeah. not your brother. Um, which even then I wouldn't say would be like, Yep, go ahead, have that like drag down knockout conversation. Like 
Yeah, maybe try talking to your husband more about it, how you're feeling, because I don't, I don't know anything about how your husband feels. Yeah, if you need to, like, take a break from looking at their video messages from an infinity pool, that's totally understandable. If you need to, like, mute them on Instagram or wherever. I don't even know if you can mute people on Instagram. Um, do You know, do what you got to do. Like, don't don't surround yourself with, like, video representations of how high on the hog they're living. That's absolutely okay. Yeah, if you want to vent, vent. Just maybe not to them directly. Yeah. Vent to a therapist. Um, and I would say vent appropriately to your husband because, again, yeah. that's his brother. He may not have the same response that you do. Um, please do bear in mind that, like, as cool and as meaningful as your work and your life with your family sounds, um, that doesn't make you the arbiter of how other people spend their money. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just always better in those moments when those decisions come up to just kind of remind yourself, I cannot control how they spend their money. I'm going to let that one go. I have no control over that. All I can focus on is the work that I care about in my own family. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to talking to them, if it feels like the conversation really gets dominated by, like, whatever new, like, toy they have acquired or trip they are going to take, it is absolutely okay to say, like, oh, I really want to tell you about something that I did recently or I'm really excited about this. Like, you get to be a participant in the conversation and not just a passive, resentful receiver of like laundry lists of purchase items. Yeah, because that's just going to lead to the letter writer stewing and uh, venting at a very inappropriate time. Yep. And so I would say, you know, your brother-in-law has asked what has happened and why you don't like his new wife. So clearly... Something's already up. You have let it be known that things are different between the two of you and that it has to do with his wife, which I think is probably not good. Like, again, unless you were like a, a bad person, that's not... That's not what you want. You don't want – I think one of the worst outcomes is you don't really say anything, but you make it really clear that you don't like them anymore, and there's just this new wedge between you. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you want to talk to your brother-in-law, you, you don't need to make it about his wife, about how they're spending their money. You could just be honest and say, like, you know, I've been uh, going through some stuff lately just about feelings where money's concerned. So uh, it might be useful to apologize for giving such a negative uh, – reaction to his wife and their life. Um, right. Right. Because, again, some of your feelings are legitimate, but your response is not the best possible response yeah. to those legitimate feelings. So I think it actually would be okay. Again, depending on how close the two of you are, I would check in with your husband first because, again, that's his side of the family. It's always good to check in with the person who's related to the people before mm-hmm. you go forth forth with some new aspect of your relationship. Um, and you don't have to go into great detail. You don't have to, like, bare your soul. But you yeah. can just say, you know what? Um, I hear that. I know I've been a little bit distant lately. I have been going through a lot with my own feelings. Um, and I really apologize that that translates into my being cold and distant. Because yeah. that's not what I want to be with you. I love you. I care about you. I'm so glad that you're happy. Because you can be, letter writer. Like, you don't have to like his new wife to say, I am happy that you found someone you're happy with. Right. And you're not, that, that doesn't mean you have to pretend to love all of their choices or want all of their choices for yourself. But you don't, you, that's not something you have to do. You don't yeah. have to worry about that. And so I think to just say, like, you're right and I'm sorry um, and I don't want to do that and I, I, I do miss our closeness. And again, that doesn't mean you have to, like, talk on the phone for an hour every day. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I do think it would be appropriate to acknowledge that he is right when he says you have seemed distant and, and all that and to just say, um, and I, and I want to, I want to do better. And to remember, mm-hmm. it is not always appropriate to share all of your thoughts and feelings about how he spends his money with him. If it's really hard yes. for you, talk to a therapist, talk to a friend, talk to somebody else. Um, filter before you share with him. 
Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Because it's just what good can come of it? Yeah, that was that was my initial response. Was just that uh, clearly this is something that's been gnawing at the letter writer for right. quite some time, but it, it doesn't seem like anything productive would come of that conversation if they were to have it. Yep, I, I would say at most you can acknowledge that there's been a little bit of a distance um, and say that you are working on it and you want to do differently and you really do care about him and you really are happy for him and let that be that. Yeah. Um, and then if future conversations get really dominated by their massive new purchases, it is okay to either say, hey, can we talk about something else for a little while? Mm-hmm. Or to say, hey, if you're interested in philanthropy, I know this really cool project that some friends of mine are working on. You might want to check it out. Um, or to just say, like, I love you. I hope you're having a great time. Got to go. Yeah. Like, you can say neutral things that are just like, you sound really happy. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. And that is true. And that is not, like, co-signing all of their choices. Um, it's just falls under the great umbrella of lots of times our relatives make choices that we don't think are great, but that are not necessarily like actively harmful in the worst and yeah. don't require our constant input. Yes. I think, I, yeah, I think just the like operating principle you should go with in this is um, it is always better to err on the side of, you know, positive neutrality. Yeah. When it comes to relatives and money. Um, That's not to say that there aren't definitely at times when, like, you need to speak up if someone in your family is doing something that you believe to be wrong. Um, I don't think this falls under that category. No, it doesn't. I mean, I think it would just be good for the letter writer to hopefully focus on their own life, their own feelings, their own relationship with money, especially, so that they don't get to the point where uh, they're, you know, calling their brother-in-law's wife money bags behind her back. Yeah, yeah. Do not. Do not draw her into your next Scrooge McDuck cartoon. Yeah. Or or whatever it is that you're doing. And good luck. Yeah, good luck. Oh, all right. It was a heavy week. Yes. We did it. We did. I am very glad that we did. I am too. I think we've both earned ourselves at least one episode of American Vandal this oh, afternoon. Oh, I'm just thinking about that makes me so happy. I'm so excited to watch the last couple. I just want to crawl into a cave mm-hmm. and make a nest and just watch TV there for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. I, I would probably want to be in a hut near the ocean. Perfectly understandable. Yeah. Perfectly understandable. I'll absolutely allow that. That totally falls under the rubric of the new way that we live. Good, 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 good. Thank you so much for your lovely advice. Thank you so much for um, having me. It was just terrific, and I hope that we get to have you back again soon. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. You already listen to podcasts, but there isn't much quality audio for your kids. Pinna is a safe, ad-free guilt-free audio entertainment app just for kids. Pinna has programs for kids from 4 to 12, but parents will enjoy it too. It's perfect for car time, bath time, group time, bedtime, or anytime. Try Pinna for free. Go to pinna.fm slash listen to start your free trial today.